If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. If you're able, you're welcome to stand as we read. I'll be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 26. If you're able, please join me as we read from God's Word. Please stand if you're able. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. He he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered, and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health, in the presence of you all. And now, therefore, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ was suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant Jesus, 
and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's pray. Lord, you have told us that you will look to great, with grace to the one who is humble and contrite, the one who trembles at your word. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us humility and contrite hearts so that we might receive your word with faith. Open the eyes of our hearts so we might behold wonderful things in this, your word. And we pray in all things, help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. In 1986, a man named Tyree Guyton returned to his home neighborhood in Detroit, a neighborhood called Heidelberg. Uh, He had been away for a while and came back to this childhood neighborhood of his to find it in a state of chaotic disuse, misuse, and dilapidation. Uh, This had been, in his youth, a once thriving uh, middle-class neighborhood, and now had been riddled with vacant lots, vandalism, drugs, gangs, violence, houses sitting empty and occupied for ill purposes. Having lost three of his brothers to violence um, on the streets, he was inspired by his grandfather, who lived there as well, to seek a better way. Uh, So he came back, took up a paintbrush, Uh, began his career as an artist, and one of the first things he began doing was cleaning up the Heidelberg neighborhood, transforming trash and found objects into artwork, taking vacant houses where no one lived and they were just falling apart, and using them as a blank canvas to create beautiful works of art in this neighborhood that was riddled with violence and hopelessness. All the things in that neighborhood that had been broken by corruption and neglect uh, and sin, Guyton was beginning to restore with others, piece by piece, into a safe and beautiful place. Vacant buildings now displaying beautiful works of art. Shady street corners where you weren't safe before, now becoming centers of community and life. Uh, The Heidelberg Project continues today. You can look it up. It's a wonderful story of restoration. And I think serves as a helpful and vivid illustration of what God is at work doing in the world. God is at work by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through his church, through the proclamation of the good news, bringing restoration, restoring sinners who were alienated from him, restoring them into fellowship and right relationship with himself through the power of the gospel. And one day, as he is now restoring individual lives and restoring his church, our lives, one day he will restore all of creation, completely doing away with sin and all of its effects so that all of creation will be exactly what God intended it to be in the beginning and all by the resurrection power of Jesus. God is at work restoring his people from sin and its effects. And in this passage, uh, we have a sign of that restoration. 
In the first 10 verses, we have a, a sign, a miraculous deed of physical restoration. And in the remaining verses, verses 11 through 26, we have Peter's explanation of what that sign, what that miraculous deed means in terms of who Jesus is and what it is that he has done and how we ought to respond to him in light of who he is and what he has done. And so let's first look at the sign in verses 1 through 10. We should note as well that this chapter, these verses, are the beginning of kind of a lengthier part of the book of Acts that ex extends into the next chapter. But look with me, if you will, at verses 1 through 10 as we see physical inability overcome by the resurrection power of Jesus. Notice, if you will, and you probably heard this as we were reading through it, how Luke emphasizes in different ways the physical inability of the man who receives this miraculous healing in this story. Uh, notice verse 2, the man has been lame from birth, unable to use his legs, unable to walk. He has never used his feet, his ankles, his legs in the way that he was intended to. From the moment he was born, he has been unable to walk his entire life. Notice, too, he has to be carried. He, he can't get himself to the place where he needs to be. He wants to be at the temple. This is the place where people will come uh, on a daily basis for the hours of prayer, for the evening sacrifices, as in this story. This is the time where he can receive charity, alms from others. But he has to be carried there. He's not able to make it there on his own. As he's carried, he has to be set down in a particular place. He cannot do it for himself. And as he is there, he has to beg alms, charity, receiving from others what he cannot earn for himself. He is totally dependent on others. And it, it would seem, as we read about this, this man, that the extent of his hope at this point is that each day he will receive enough charity perhaps to buy the food that he needs to provide for himself in other ways, that as people are going into the temple, his hope is that he will receive some charity from them. And here in this story, we see that his hope is exceeded in an unexpected and abundant way. Here he is sitting at the, the gate of the temple that's called Beautiful, and Peter and John are on their way up about 3 o'clock, a time of prayer, and being uh, good Jews who are following Jesus as the Messiah, they make their way up to the temple for this time of prayer, this time of the evening sacrifice. And as they are going, the man looks at them, expecting, asking them for alms, uh, and they get his attention. Look at us. And he fixes his gaze on them, and what does he expect? Some silver and some gold, what everybody else has been giving him all this time. They gave him instead not silver or gold, which they did not have with them, but rather what he most deeply needed. Not just physical healing, they gave him Jesus. Peter looks at him and, and says to him, I don't have silver, I don't have gold. And you're probably, some of you are singing the song in your head, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Do you know this song? Yeah, some of you do? Okay. Now you know at least that part of it. Peter looks at him and says, I don't have any money, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. And he seizes him by the right hand and pulls him up 
Literally, it says he raises him up. It's resurrection language. The man is raised up with a leap. He stands up. He walks. He goes into the temple with Peter and John. He's walking. He's leaping. He's praising God. Everybody who is there sees him walking, and they know exactly who he is. This is the man who has been day by day brought to the temple by others, set down by others, dependent on others, receiving charity from anybody who would give it to him. And here he is walking. Notice the extent of this miracle. It's immediate. Now, I know some of you have gone through physical therapy, maybe recovering from surgery or some other injury, and and you know how difficult physical therapy is. If you're recovering from surgery and you haven't used your arm or your legs or you have hip surgery, whatever the case may be, when you get into physical therapy and they start teaching you how to walk again, it's hard. Muscles that have not been used as much, now you're starting to use them and they hurt. Sometimes you even have to retrain your brain how you ought to walk now following surgery or some other injury, and, and it's difficult work. But notice Luke says the man's feet and ankles were immediately strengthened. He had never used them, and the Lord fully, comprehensively healed him, strengthening even his feet and ankles so that he was able, with a leap, to stand up and begin walking immediately. He needed no physical therapy to learn how to do this. God did it in him immediately rebuilding the muscle, training his brain so that he knew how to walk. All of this given, as Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. In the power of the resurrected Jesus, this man is physically restored from being lame since birth, now being able to leap and walk and praise God in the temple, being seen by all who are there. I think it's worth pointing out here maybe some implications for how we think about physical weakness and, and physical needs, which, is, which often occupies a lot of what we pray for because it's a lot of what we experience in this life, and, and rightly so we ought to pray for that. But notice in this story that the place of weakness, the place of inability, is not something that is looked down upon but rather is the place where the resurrection power of Jesus meets this man in his weakness, meets him in his inability, and gives him healing, gives him grace. This man could hardly deny that he was in need. He might deny help, although he obviously did not, but he could not deny that he was in need of others to do for him what he could not. We may often deny our spiritual need for grace because we feel self-sufficient otherwise. And many times, physical weakness is a time that forces us to recognize that we are spiritually weak and in need of the grace of God. And we shouldn't miss that. We shouldn't miss that oftentimes our physical afflictions are pointing us beyond the need for physical healing, whether through medicine or surgery or other means or God healing us directly, we shouldn't miss that that should point us beyond the need for physical healing to the need for God's grace to restore our lives, to forgive us of our sins because sin is the fountain of all other physical troubles and problems. And oftentimes it's very easy to be um, 
focus so much on the physical sufferings that we experience and afflictions that we don't see beyond that to how God is working through that to give us grace and to teach us to trust him. Uh, Whether he heals or not, he will give us grace in the midst of that. At the same time, it's important for us to see ourselves in the lame man. That no matter how physically capable or incapable we may find ourselves to be, we are all in need of the same thing he needed, the resurrection power of Jesus to restore us, whether physically or spiritually or both. Every affliction points us to the deeper affliction of sin, and every recovery points us to the greater redemption that Christ brings by his death and resurrection. We see that in the man's response to his healing. He leaps up and he praises God, following, clinging to Peter and John as they enter into the temple. He's leaping, he's praising God, which is a a reference back to Isaiah. When Isaiah talks about what it will be like when the Messiah comes, he says, the lame will leap and praise God because when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he will bring restoration that will affect even physical affliction. And so here this man is fulfilling that prophecy from Isaiah. And he's praising God for this restoration. But we see it as well, this need for spiritual restoration in Peter's sermon explaining what happened. Peter is standing, Peter and John standing with this man who's now healed. The crowds all gather around them because they're shocked. They're amazed at what's happened. Peter, never one to waste an opportunity, begins to preach to them to explain that this miracle is a sign pointing to the work of Jesus and the need for repentance in our lives. Notice Peter's sermon here. Not only is physical restoration overcome by resurrection power, but we see here spiritual, uh, sorry, physical inability is overcome by resurrection power, but also spiritual inability is overcome by the resurrection of Jesus. Just as the lame man needed the grace of God, so also do we to be spiritually restored. Peter is speaking to a group of Jews who are gathered here at the temple, and he begins and ends with a reference to the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's speaking to his own people. He's appealing to them as fellow Jews and pointing them to the promises that God has made and kept and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I just want to point out three things here as we think about spiritual restoration. First, Peter points to the resurrection of Jesus. should not surprise us as we've been working through Acts that this is a prominent theme, a dominant theme, if you will, in the book of Acts. That every sermon that you read in the book focuses on Jesus as the promised Messiah who died and who rose again from the dead. And because he has been raised from the dead, he is the one who is able to redeem us. And so Peter focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. He points out that they're the ones who have disowned him, that they gave him up, they delivered him up to death, but God raised him from the dead, a fact to which they are witnesses. Because of this, it's not the power of Peter and John that they should be amazed at. This is why Peter looks at them and says, why are you amazed? Why are you surprised? You're acting like we're the ones who've done this. You should not be surprised. God has done this through Jesus, the resurrected one. The one who has healed this man is the one whom you put to death and whom 
God raised from the dead. The resurrection is the proof, again, that Jesus is the long-promised, long-awaited Christ whom God would send, that he has come and is now at work restoring all things by his powerful grace. So we see resurrection. We see the response that Peter calls for among the people who were gathered there. He calls them to repent and return. Notice verse 19. You killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. What a wonderful image to use to describe the forgiveness of sins. Some of you love whiteboards. Well, I love whiteboards. I don't know if some of you love whiteboards. I love whiteboards for teaching because you can use them again and again and again. And if you have enough of the cleansing spray uh, for the whiteboard, you can clean the whiteboard so that all that was on there before has been completely wiped away. You can't see it. It's, it's disappeared. And Peter is saying that when we respond to the resurrection, to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with repentance, returning, turning our lives away from sin and toward him, that he wipes away all of our sins. It's as if apart from Christ, we're walking around with placards around our necks, and on those placards are written all the ways that we have sinned against God, all the ways that we have sinned against one another, all of the things that we think that we hope nobody will ever know, all the things that we've done in darkness, all the things that we've done in open spaces, all of our sin just right there for all to see. Of course, God sees it all no matter what. And Peter is saying that when we come to Christ, the crucified one, the risen one, it's all washed away. And it never comes back up against us again. He does not hold your sin against you, but as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He wipes them away. If you are in Jesus Christ, there is no record of your sin to be held against you, because at the cross of Jesus, he took that record on himself and bore in his own flesh the full penalty of God's wrath. And it's done. It is finished. And as you come to Christ, it's wiped away, completely cleansed from all of your sin, because Jesus has done it all in his death and resurrection. We are to respond to Christ's resurrection with repentance, with the promise that our sins will be wiped away. Notice as well that Peter says that there's a promise that there will be refreshment, that there will be times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Probably what he has in mind here is seasons of spiritual joy. That as we follow Christ and trust in his ability to restore us spiritually, that he refreshes us when our hearts are dry and feel broken and, and unable to walk by faith and it's difficult to see God's promises. Uh, Peter promises here that the Lord sends times of refreshing seasons of spiritual refreshment. Many of you may receive that from other believers uh, with whom you pray, with whom you have fellowship, encouraging you in the Lord, encouraging you to keep looking to Jesus and following him in spite of the difficulties that you may face. The Lord sends spiritual refreshment through his people and by his spirit. Sins wiped away, 
spiritual refreshment from the Lord. And then finally notice restoration, restoration in verse uh, 21. Jesus has been received into heaven until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. This is exile language. In the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly the major prophets, there are these promises, promises that God's people will be sent into exile because of their idolatry. It's a sign of God's judgment. He cast them out of the land that he promised and gave to them. They turn from God, he turns from them and sends them out. But along with those promises of judgment and the judgment that actually comes, again and again throughout the prophets, he gives them this promise that there will be a restoration, that he will bring them back to himself with a wonderful work of grace and an outpouring of his spirit, as well as bringing them back to the land. Uh, that they were promised. And Peter is saying here that as we come to the Lord in faith, that restoration is happening now. But it doesn't have to do any longer with restoration to a physical piece of property. Rather, the restoration that Jesus is at work doing now uh, doesn't mean that we're going to all end up on a, a sliver of land in the Near East. It means that Jesus is at work now in your life restoring you into the image of God that has been broken by sin. It's like the Heidelberg Project and Tyree Guyton returning to his childhood neighborhood and seeking to restore this broken-down neighborhood that has been riddled with sin, riddled with violence, riddled with corruption. It's not a safe place. It's not a happy place. The people who lived there had very little hope. And, and through restoration effort, people are living there again and have joy and have some measure of hope simply from these small acts. How much more the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that not only will he one day restore all things and put an end to sin and all of its effects and unite heaven and earth in himself, but he is at work now restoring our lives. We're like the dilapidated buildings. We're like those buildings that are in disrepair and are in need of some tender loving care from the Savior Jesus, to rebuild us, to restore us. How does he do that? He does it through repentance. He does it through transforming our lives as we see our sin, seek forgiveness for it from God and from others. As we walk in repentance, putting off anger and putting on love, putting off deceitfulness and putting on truthfulness and speaking the truth in love, putting off bitterness and malice and anger and clamor and slander and ill intent, and instead putting on tenderheartedness, kindness, and forgiveness, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven us. God is at work now restoring each of us as we follow Jesus, restoring us into the image of Christ and knowledge and righteousness and holiness as we walk in repentance, clinging to, not Peter and John, but clinging to Jesus and the promises of God that are fulfilled in him. The Lord is at work bringing about a wonderful spiritual restoration by the power of Jesus' 
resurrection. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for those of us who are weary from our own sin? Isn't that good news for those of us who, who feel the weight of sin, whether physically or emotionally and spiritually, however that comes to you? Isn't that good news for those of us who live in a world broken by the fall and rebellion against God and who long for a time when we will no longer struggle with sin, the effects of it on our body, the effects of it in our hearts, but we'll be free from it. Jesus is at work doing that now, and one day we'll bring it to full completion. When we see him face to face and when Christ returns to make all things new, no longer plagued and riddled by sin. Isn't that good news? That good news has some implications for us. Just two things as we end. For those who are non-believers, if you're not a follower of Christ, what is it that you think you need? Are you like the lame man whose expectations and hopes were limited by his physical inability and all that he hoped for was silver and gold from somebody, some charity that he might be able to eat that day? Or do you know that there's a deeper need, uh, that, that all of our physical limitations are just small reminders that we are in need of a Savior who will not only forgive our sins, but one day restore our very bodies in the resurrection? Jesus is at work restoring, fixing, if you will, the broken parts of life. And you need to see that he is the one, he's the only one who is able to do that for you. Come to Jesus don't let your damage keep you from Jesus. Don't let the broken parts of your life keep you from Jesus. He is in the business of restoring broken people. And he's been raised from the dead to show that that is what he is all about. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ already, then this has some implications for you. What do you have? Not, not what do you need, but what do you have? You have the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You have the free good news that Christ has died and been raised again for sinners who will come to him in faith. Give away what you have. Don't, don't give people what they don't need. Give away what you have because that is what they need. And sometimes that comes through meeting people in physical needs. Peter and John healed the man. They dealt with his physical problem, but they didn't stop there. They led him to Jesus. Uh, as believers, you have a wonderful deposit of grace from Jesus Christ, and it's meant not to stop with you, but to go through you, to be given away to others. Give away what you have and point others to Jesus. And finally, trust that the Lord is at work by the power of his resurrection, the power that overcame death and sin and hell, it's that power that is at work in you, restoring you into his image and likeness. And so may we believe that, and may we walk in repentance and faith and be like the Heidelberg neighborhood in Detroit, being restored bit by bit, piece by piece, as the kingdom of God reigns in our lives and as it spreads through us to others. Would you pray with me?